When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included. All while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On this episode of Newt's World, we're going to get serious about facing America's greatest threat, China. On July 1st in Beijing, the Chinese celebrated the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think with that centennial celebration, it's a good time for the United States to discuss the scale of the threat and the complexity of the threat we are facing. In 2019, I published the book Trump versus China with Claire Christensen, and I spent a lot of my time looking at the issues we're facing with China. The Belt and Road Initiative, the takeover of the South China Sea, economic aggression, and the militarization of space, just to name a few topics. Since writing the book, Claire Christensen, who is the co-author of Trump versus China and part of my team here at Gingrich 360, has continued to maintain a network of other China watchers and has continued to track the evolution of China and their goals to become the world's next great superpower. And she has really been a voice for why the United States needs to overcome the greatest obstacle to the Chinese threat, ourselves. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Claire Christensen. Claire, thank you for taking time to hang out with me today. Thank you, Newt. I'm thrilled to be here today. So I want to start, you know, you've been looking at China, you've thought about it, you've had many lunches and dinners with people, many of whom actually have come from China. And I'm just curious, compared to back when you first started looking at China, what have been the biggest changes in your own mind 
about how you think about China. So you'll recall, you and I started really diving into China back in the fall of 2017. At that time, President Trump had just come into office, and we had just started turning the tide of the conversation towards recognizing the threat that communist China was becoming. President Trump obviously had a large part in that. And I think as the past four years now have gone by, what we've realized is, first and foremost, that China is committed to its totalitarianism, that their system of Marxism and Leninist ideology of power is ultimately what is going to carry them through to achieve their goal in 2049, which is global domination, to put it bluntly. I think as the time has gone on, we've started to see more and more of what that type of strategy entails. And more and more people are becoming aware of the threat that communist China poses to not just the government, not just the intelligence communities, but to every single American. I think people have really started to wake up to this challenge. And especially since the emergence of the pandemic back in fall of 2019, people have just started to realize the dangers that China poses. It's not just a human rights issue, but it's also a real national security threat. I'm curious. You've watched now for four years as Xi Jinping has been evolving. And of course, his big moment celebrating the 100th anniversary, which in a way, if you think, for example, about the Soviet Union came and went. The Chinese are not only there, but they're successfully there and they're growing in economic and military power. How do you explain Xi Jinping and what is it you look for when you look at his speeches or you read about stories about him? Yeah, so a couple things. First, when you look at the English translations of some of the speeches that Xi Jinping puts out and the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda apparatuses, oftentimes the English translations will be different than what's actually translated in Chinese. So, for example, there were a lot of bombastic rhetoric that Xi Jinping apparently ad-libbed throughout his speech that he gave on the 100th anniversary celebrations that were held earlier in July. And some of those phrases were seized upon in Western media. So the bashing of skulls and the firewall of 1.4 billion Chinese citizens. What we have to look for when we're looking at those speeches is when she really evokes that sense of nationalist rhetoric, that goes to show China watchers and people who are looking at this issue that ultimately what Xi Jinping is trying to do is really evoke a sense of nationalism within the Chinese people. Because the Chinese Communist Party and with Xi Jinping at the helm, we have to remember the structure of power, as you and I have talked about often. Xi Jinping is first and foremost the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, with 95 million members now. It's grown since we wrote the book a couple of years ago. The Chinese Communist Party ultimately roots its power on two factors. One, a sense of nationalism, and two, economic superiority and economic progress. So when the scales of the balance tip one way or the other, when the economy is not doing really well, you can bet that they're going to really try to amp up that nationalist rhetoric and try to really evoke a sense of pride within the Chinese Communist Party and all of its members. So when I saw the speech that came out earlier this week, that was kind of my biggest takeaway from some of the rhetoric that he used. Do you think that 
we overstate the rhetoric. It's kind of interesting that it's their translations. So if they're adding bellicose terms to his speech that did not exist in the Chinese speech, you sort of have to wonder, you know, what were the instructions to the propaganda department? Right. And I think looking at Chinese propaganda and some of the different avenues that they use to try to get those headlines. So wolf warrior diplomacy was kind of this bombastic rhetoric that was deployed in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic, particularly it got of coverage back in March and April. And a lot of those very inflammatory statements were ironically used by diplomats on Twitter, which is banned in China. So you can kind of see where they're directing that type of rhetoric, if they're directing it towards the more Western-speaking countries, if they're putting it up on Twitter or on different English-speaking publications, or if they're doing it to target more to their Chinese audiences, in which case they'll start publishing it in Chinese-speaking outlets. So recognizing the distinction is really important. The Chinese have a very controlled and very large propaganda apparatus, especially in the United States, too. China in 2020 actually spent more than any other country on lobbying and propaganda work here in the United States. So I think recognizing the nuances and some of the language that's used. Another great example that we wrote about in the book as well, it's very subtle, but the difference between the China dream and the Chinese dream. So when Chinese propaganda outlets such as Xinhua, the Global Times, People's Daily, etc., write about the Chinese dream in English publications. They use the words Chinese dream. And the Chinese dream is Xi Jinping's essential goal to rejuvenate the Chinese nation. It was talked a lot about during his speech, and also it's been a cornerstone of what the Chinese Communist Party is working for. So when they write about it in Chinese propaganda outlets in English-speaking countries, they use the words Chinese dream, which gives people the sense that this is a dream of the Chinese people. But in reality, when you directly translate the characters, it translates to China dream, which has more of a removed kind of sense. So it's those little nuances that we need to really be careful to look for. And that's one of the things, the language barrier is something that's really challenging when we're dealing with China, particularly in our intelligence communities and from a policy perspective as well. It's hard to find really good Chinese speakers. We do have many talented people who do understand the language, but it's very complicated and it's difficult to understand. Recognizing the nuances in those language and building up more Chinese speakers will really help us in this long-term challenge that we're going to be facing. When you look at the reality you see in China, are you surprised by people like the CEO of Nike who said that Nike is totally committed to China and Nike is a part of China? Oh, yeah. There was a great phrase, values are only important and only relevant when it comes to making the hard decisions. Values only matter when you're faced with a decision that affects either your bottom line or it requires adhering to whatever those values are. So when I see people like the CEO of Nike, Disney, the head of the NBA, all of these big corporations siding with their corporate bottom line and just willfully turning a blind eye to the egregious behavior of the Chinese Communist Party, it's really shocking. And ultimately, I think it's really disheartening and it's really sad because that's a clear indication of 
the challenges that we're facing in our own country, which is attacks against patriotism. Throughout the Olympic trials, when you have people that are disgracing the American flag and you have critical race theory emerging in our schools, begin to wonder where is this going to go in the future? What is going to happen if we don't have a sense of pride in our own country? How are we going to be able to overcome them? Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. You sent me a note the other day that the difference in the size of the American and Chinese navies has been transitioning at really a startling rate. Do you sense that they actually intend to be capable of challenging us at sea? Yes, most definitely. But I think the way that we look at 
their abilities to challenge us at sea is different in some of our military planning. China has a doctrine, essentially, where it goes back to Sun Tzu, the greatest generals win bloodless victories. So ultimately, their goal is to build up a military fleet so large, so capable that they will be able to overtake us without even having to fire a shot. And you look at all the different port acquisitions that are going on worldwide, how they're building those up. You look at the fishing fleets, which all have a maritime military capability as well. And you start to see as they're building all of these different avenues up, eventually they'll just be able to encircle us and we won't be able to do anything about it. They'll be able to just make the first move. On the South China Sea strategy, where they are gradually and methodically building islands and building airfields, by making it a fact that they're so dominant in the South China Sea that ultimately they will be able to claim a kind of sovereignty. But supposedly they just sent 200,000 more troops to the Indian-Chinese border, and those troops are up at eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 feet in the middle of the Himalayan mountains. I mean, first of all, there are now more Indians than Chinese. India is a more chaotic country than China. And I don't quite understand what the Chinese think they're going to gain. There are a lot of places, if I were China, I'd be you know, sort of placing some bets. I'm not sure the Himalayan mountains would be one of them. Right. Fourteen countries border China. Historically, they've always been concerned about border incursions. I agree with you that strategically placing troops up in the Himalayan mountains, especially when winter is going to be here sooner than we know it, might not be the most (laughs) effective allocation of resources. But nonetheless, going back to some of the sense of nationalism, the sense of pride, I think that Securing their borders is something that's really, really important, specifically with India as well. And the Indian media has also been really lambasting some of the border crises as well. So it's important to China. They have a stake in this dispute. So it's important to not back down and to not be seen as weak. You've got a significant Chinese investment in the Indian border, a real effort to sort of eliminate the Tibetan Buddhist system and replace it with a Han system. A continuing struggle to totally change the Uyghurs and the whole process in the West. And in fact, I'd raised the question whether the Chinese would fill the vacuum in Afghanistan if we pulled out. And one of the points somebody made to me is, since everybody in Afghanistan is a devout Muslim, the Chinese would be very, very risk-averse to get that involved with Muslims because they find dealing with religions so difficult. But you keep coming all the way sweeping around. And what's amazing is not only are they in the South with the South China Sea strategy, but they are becoming a major player in the Arctic. I think they currently have more icebreakers being built than any other country in the world. And you look where China is and you think, you know, this is really sort of a reach But somebody pointed out to me the other day, because the world is round, if you can break open the Arctic from a Chinese perspective, you then can ship to Europe at about half the time. But the whole notion of China going from a South China Sea power to an Arctic power is just an illustration of 
I think, the scale of effort that's underway in Chinese society. When I first started talking with people when we were researching for the book, some people attempted to make the argument that China just seeked to be a regional power. So arguing that they were focused primarily in the South China Sea. But as you dive into all the different places just throughout the world that China is involved in, you start to see that China has a global strategy. Going back to the language, they often talk about creating a community with a shared future for humankind, which is basically translated as a China-led global order. If we have to look at everything that China is doing from not just a regional perspective, but also looking at it from a global perspective, but also taking into account not just the military ambitions, but all of these different avenues which they are employing in order to essentially assert their 2049 ultimate goal. And part of that harkens back to 1999, two colonels in China's military wrote a book called Unrestricted Warfare. And essentially what Unrestricted Warfare argues is there are virtually endless domains by which battles can be fought, not just traditional military troops battling it out like we traditionally think of. So when you look at the economy, when you look at information, warfare, lawfare, and also the military strategies as well, and you start to kind of piece these all together, you start to see that not only is China geographically going out all throughout the world, but also they are using a variety of different strategies and a variety of different methods that we don't traditionally associate with warfare in order to challenge democracies and free-loving countries throughout the world. You know, I was very struck when Krista was the ambassador to the Vatican and we were living in Italy. The Chinese showed up and took over management of the two largest ports in Italy. So they now manage Venice and they manage Genoa, which is the biggest port in Italy. And in Venice, I've been told, and I don't have proof of this, but I've been told, below the water, they're digging in and actually building facilities that are in the ground below the sea around Venice. And they just have very large projects underway. And I think by a big margin, the largest number of ports that are now being dredged are being dredged by Chinese. They have a company, I'm assuming they subsidized it, but they have a company now which dominates dredging worldwide, which also means they're gathering up all this information. So I assume, because they're methodical and they're very smart, that somewhere in Beijing, all of this port information now exists as intelligence. And I think that's part of what we don't get, that historically we had a relatively thin defense system and the free enterprise system was out there churning away and doing whatever worked for free enterprise but it wasn't designed to be a power extension or a military extension capability. And they come at this, I think, in ways that we just literally don't understand. Exactly. One of the things that I always try to point out to people, that's one of the first talking points when I'm discussing China, is that there is no such thing as a private sector in China. There is no such thing as something that an entity that operates independent of the reach of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think you're exactly right. I think you have to look at 
the potential dual use function of a lot of these different ports, the potential dual use function of scientific research and military research. They have a strategy that they term as military civil fusion, essentially where they use scientific research and different investments in private sector technology businesses, some of their nearly 200 talent programs around the world. They use all of the information that they glean from those investments towards advancing their military ambitions as well. So I think looking at the potential dual use for ports around the world, economic investments, et cetera, is something that's really important. And I think it requires a big shift in how we think about potentially innocuous actions and how they can be used to our disadvantage. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. One of the greatest problems that faces any country that has been very successful is how to have a conversation with itself about a world that's dangerous. And all the internal advantages are in favor of complacency and problem avoidance. I was very struck that in the pre-World War II era, there was a joint planning board then between the Navy Department and the War Department. And the joint planning board was supposed to coordinate the services specifically 
as they related to the Philippines. Well, it turned out after Pearl Harbor that the Army had this terrific plan to defend the Philippines for three months until the Navy arrived. And the Navy had this terrific plan to arrive in three years. And that did not, by the way, take into account losing most of their battleships at Pearl Harbor. So they just thought it would take three years to fight their way across the Pacific, even with the full fleet. So here you have MacArthur sitting out there with this great three-year plan, which probably wouldn't have worked anyway. But he's calling on the Navy and learning, oh, yeah, we're going to be there about three years from now. And it was just a great reminder that bureaucracies have an enormous capacity to avoid reality. Now, it's even more powerful with the American people. When the Japanese bombed the U.S. naval gunboat Panay in Chinese waters in 1937, Gallup ran a question, and instead of finding that the American people were enraged, most Americans were asking the question, why do we have a warship in China? And so Roosevelt had no leverage, because the Japanese knew those numbers. They had no leverage in going after the Japanese for having bombed an American warship, uh, because the American people just didn't care. As late as 1939, you had a very, very large segment of the American people who absolutely did not want to help Great Britain or France against Nazi Germany. Just said, basically, that's a European problem. We're sick and tired of it. Being involved in World War I didn't help. And so we're not going to be involved in their fight. Let them fight it out. It's a very significant, maybe 35, 40% of the country, including many well-known celebrities. So we're now in a similar, I think, situation. It's quite clear that China is getting more powerful, more aggressive, more formidable. And it's also equally clear that the American elites are split. There are almost as many pro-Chinese in our senior leadership, our CEOs, our celebrities, etc., as there were people who were comfortable with Germany in 1938-39 or comfortable with the Soviet Union in 1946-47. And I think that's an enormous problem. Claire, I want to get your feeling, because you talk to so many people, what's it going to take for the American people and the American elites to realize what a significant challenge we have? Yeah, so one of the kind of results that happened after the coronavirus pandemic and after it was very clear the extent to which the Chinese Communist Party lied about the emergence of the virus, covered it up, and didn't do their due diligence to the global international community in preventing this virus. What happened was the American people, their unfavorability ratings toward China skyrocketed to historic highs. There was a Pew poll a couple months ago that showed that 89% of the American people distrust China and view them as a competitor or an adversary. That's really significant. That's a big turning tide. Is that a big jump from two or three years ago? Yes. So it has been very significant. And President Trump, throughout his administration, sounding the alarm bells on China, as I mentioned earlier, I think that's going to be one of his greatest lasting legacies. 
He really started this movement when he wrote his national security strategy back in December 2017, and the problem just continued to be made more and more apparent. With no assistance from the mainstream media, who chooses to ignore the problems with China for their own self-interest. But countering China is largely a bipartisan issue. The challenges that we face and the people who oppose effective counter-China strategy do not fall within the Democrat and the Republican traditional party lines. Actually, last fall, Chairman McCall's China Task Force report that came out had 400 recommendations on what to do with China legislatively. And out of all of the legislative recommendations, half of those were bipartisan. So it's not a Democrat versus Republican issue. Like you mentioned, it is an issue with the elites, the CEOs, the academics, the scientists, the researchers, sometimes journalists who have an interest in maintaining the status quo that we've had with communist China for so long. And it's renewing a sense of patriotism. It's encouraging a grassroots movement, encouraging the American people to call their representatives, have legislation move faster, get passed faster. Right now, the congressional approach is throwing billions of dollars at this problem. But ultimately, it's not just throwing money at the the problem to increase our research capabilities and what have you. It's about holding our CEOs and our businesses accountable and really putting pressure on them to change their behaviors and move out of China. And do you see any real progress on that front, or do you see them just essentially ignoring public opinion? I think they are unfortunately ignoring public opinion. I think you look at what the Nike CEO said just a couple of weeks ago, that Nike is a company for China. And it doesn't get more blunt than that. And the challenge that we have is China is a country of 1.4 billion people with a growing middle class, people who have more purchasing power. So it's a very attractive market for these big companies who want to make a profit in China. Similarly with Hollywood, with China's growing movie industry, more people going out to the movies and buying tickets. Hollywood is more incentivized to tailor their storylines in such a way that get by the Chinese censors so that they can show their movies in China. Unfortunately, I haven't seen much progress in companies growing a backbone and deciding to stand up against China's human rights abuses. You have these companies that are still continuing to sponsor the Olympics in 2022 in Beijing. Despite all of the information that's come out about the Uyghurs and the horrific imprisonment of millions of people in Western China, I haven't seen much of a movement, but I think that's where American consumers can go online, read some of these websites that have these companies listed, such as China Owns Us, and make purchasing decisions on their own sense, on their own decisions every day. Let me ask you for a second, as you've watched for the last four or five years, the evolution of Xi Jinping, both in his public speeches and in the reports we get about his various meetings. How do you assess him as a leader? He's got a lot to lose at this point. He has been a dramatic turn from the Deng Xiaoping practice of biding your time and hiding your capabilities. Some people think that he's shown his hand too early, shown China's true ambitions under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. I think he's 
running a big risk. I think he's incredibly fragile. The party itself is very fractured. There are some party elites who believe that he has bitten off more than he can chew and that China is going to have a real uphill battle in the coming years. But there are others who are really kind of seizing this opportunity of China's coming out party. He's incredibly fragile. President Trump actually, I think, was someone who Xi Jinping felt that he could really deal with and felt that he was the only Chinese Communist Party member who was capable of handling President Trump, so to speak, because President Trump was so dangerous to China because he was unpredictable, because he said what he thought, and because he was not afraid of what the typical elites in Washington and New York and Silicon Valley would come back and tell him. We'll see what happens with President Biden, but General Secretary Xi Jinping, I think, is really going to, especially now with President Biden in office, he's going to continue full force along his path towards 2049. I have to ask you one last thing, which is you've had a real chance to encounter this great complex civilization. Do you find it enjoyable or do you find it sort of daunting? That's one of the things that's so fascinating. It is daunting. I mean, it's a civilization with a 5,000-year-long history. We've gone through a lot of changes over the past 70 years with the party in power. But what I find most fascinating about studying China is the history of the Chinese people. It's very complex. It's very robust. I have met a lot of very kind, very inspiring Chinese activists as well. But I find that when you study China, it does touch a lot of different areas. It touches the human rights issue, the religious freedom issue. It touches the economic issue, the technology issue, space, military, politics as well, different government systems. So I do find it really fascinating when you put all of those together because you can't just look at one siphoned off area of expertise. With China, you have to look at the whole picture because all elements work together. Well, that's great. And frankly, your work has been invaluable. That together as a team, we wrote a number one New York Times bestseller. I think in the not too distant future, we may have another run at all those topics. And also national security in general. You've really reached out and trying to understand how we integrate our own thinking. So I just want to thank you for sharing this update. Thank you so much, Duke, for having me on. Thank you to my guest, Claire Christensen. You can learn more about why China is America's greatest threat on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.